Tonight, we are going to finish up our study of the book of Haggai. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Haggai chapter 2. We have truly um, made uh, the most, I feel like we've made the most we could out of this little book here. I mean, I was looking at this today and thinking, well, this is the fifth message that we've gotten out of two chapters in Haggai. And some of you are like, yeah, we're not surprised, okay? We've been here long enough. But it really is fascinating to take the Word of God and see how much is in these short little passages and what it has to teach us as we look at this theme in the book of Haggai, which is God's work first, the preeminence of the work of God in the lives of those who follow God. Uh, That is what Haggai was preaching to God's people That is the response of God's people to Haggai. And we'll see here as we close the book of Haggai tonight that God continues to encourage his people as they they engage in his work. And we'll be in Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shelatiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Tonight we see a glorious future that is promised to Zerubbabel and the nation of Israel through him. We all enjoy a good redemption story. The long lost estranged family member who returns home and who is brought back into the fold can make us tearful and fill us with hope. And encouragement. Maybe you have heard some of these stories. Maybe you've seen a, a fictional story, such as a movie, or read one about someone who was redeemed from something that they did. Of course, probably many times our hearts and minds uh, go towards the parable that Jesus told of the two, the father with the two sons, and the one who ran away and and came home again. And as he illustrates the love of God through that story, and we connect with stories like this. Really, I think in a deeper way when we realize. That in our own hearts and souls, we have a need for redemption. We have a need to be bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are estranged from our Creator and in need of a Savior. And Jesus has come and finished the work that is needed to bring us to God. And as you look at the nation of Israel at the time that Haggai was speaking in the time that God had him there ministering to his people, Israel was a nation in need of redemption. She had been returned from exile, but still failed to wholeheartedly follow her God. And we saw in in the first chapter, God stirred the hearts of his people through Haggai. And then as you continue on reading into chapter 2, he encouraged their hearts as they followed him and obeyed him. And now, At the end of Haggai, God comes once again to encourage and strengthen his people, pointing them ahead to a day of redemption that will come 
through the line of David. And what we see in this passage tonight is that God's great and precious promises are backed up by his awesome and glorious nature. What is the, uh, what, you know, what is the way that, that we think about promises? I mean, a promise is only as good as what? The person who makes the promise, right? How many of you have ever received a promise or a guarantee from someone and you knew you were never going to be receiving whatever that promise or guarantee was, right? A promise is only as good as the person who makes the promise. And as you look throughout Scripture, as you look especially at the things God told the patriarchs of Israel and the nation of Israel through the prophets or through his direct interaction with them, there are a lot of promises, are there not? There are a lot of things that God said he was going to do for his people, that God said he was going to do through his people. We referenced one this morning where God said to Abraham, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Or God made promises about the, the, the redemption of his people from the exile, his, his restoration of them, and the way he would care for them. And we looked at, we looked at uh, in Ezekiel 34 this morning as we talked about John. If you kept reading Ezekiel 34, Jesus, God would talk about the good shepherd. He'd talk about the one who would come. And this is a promise that God would make. And promises are only as good as the person who makes them. And what you're going to see here tonight in this passage is that God makes some great and precious promises in his word, and he backs them up with his glorious and wonderful nature. Because God is who he says he is, God will do what he says he will do. And some of those promises we see have already been fulfilled, and in the way that God talks here, there are some things that we know aren't fulfilled, but we can count on them because of who God is. So let's look here, and just a couple of points from this passage, we see number one, In verses 20 through 22, God's glorious deliverance that is promised to his people. And what we come to in verse 20 is we come to the last message. It says, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying. So here we come to the end of the book of Haggai, the last recorded message we have through Haggai from the Lord. And if you'll remember... Haggai has enjoyed something that very few prophets ever enjoyed, as we read in Scripture, and that is he actually got to observe and watch and engage with the people as they listened to the message of God and they obeyed. I mean, it's so common to read that the people didn't listen or they ignored or they rejected or they just didn't really make a difference in their lives. And here, Haggai gives the message of God to the people and they respond and they begin to rebuild the temple. He then was able to encourage God's people in their obedience to him. I mean, just think about what some of the things you know about other prophets and the, the, the woes they had to declare on the nation of Israel time after time after time because the people weren't listening. And Haggai got to do something totally different. He got to encourage the people of God because they obeyed. And now Haggai delivers this little, short little message And it's time to close the little book that we have on him. And this message that he delivers is on the same date as the last message we looked at, beginning in verse 10. That this was on the 24th day of the month there, of the ninth month and on the Jewish of the Jewish calendar. And as I told you last time, in case you haven't calculated it out yet, that's December 18th, 520 BC. That's when this message comes. Now, previously, on that day, God had addressed the priests 
regarding the nature of sin and holiness. And he had a message to the people about their work and the tainting effect of sin on their work and their need to find cleansing only in him. Now, this message is directed specifically, we'll see in verse 21, to this man named Zerubbabel, who is the governor of the city, of the, or the governor of Judah. And in this message, God points Zerubbabel, and by extension the people, forward, that they may anticipate the glorious future that he has promised them as his chosen people. It's a message of reassurance and a message of recommitment to God's covenant with the nation of Israel. In verses 21 and 22, God points his people to his promised might and power. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Now maybe this picture rings a bell with you because at the beginning of chapter 2, God used the same picture to talk about the coming glory of the temple that the people were building. He talked about shaking the heavens and the earth, this image of an earthquake that God uses here again. This time, God does, does, not, talk, does not use it um, when talking about the building of the temple and the promise of the wealth of the nations that would flow into the temple. He, he is promising here and encouraging Zerubbabel and the people of his, about his mighty power over all the earth that would be brought to bear in their situation. Now, at this time that Haggai is speaking, Jerusalem, Judah, is not under their own authority, right? Do you remember? They're under the rule of the Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire, though it's a lenient and what we may even call somewhat hospitable world power, it is nonetheless a, a, governor, a government that is ruling over Israel. And since the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, no part of Israel had yet enjoyed complete autonomy once again. But notice what God is saying here. God is saying that one day, all of this is going to change. One day, that, 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 that he is going to overthrow those who are over them. He is going to win the ultimate victory. And notice... As you read through the end of verse 21 and into verse 22, who is the focus of everything that will be done? It's God, right? God is the one who do. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Because if you remember, when the nation of Israel split into a northern and southern kingdom, Israel is in the north and Judah is in the south, which of those two kingdoms was larger? Israel. They had ten tribes. Judah had two, right? Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem, the people who have come back now, is, if, if they've come back from exile, you understand Jerusalem is not a city that's set up to wage war on anybody, right? I mean, if you pitch the idea to a ragtag group of people returning from exile, hey, we're going to take over the Persian Empire. They're going to laugh at you, right? Why would we do that? 
But God doesn't promise here in these verses that he will send his people out into battle to win some war on his own. No, he is promising that one day he is going to bring judgment on the Gentile nations. We have to understand that God is in the business of exalting and taking down kingdoms. That's the way it always works. As, um, as has been said before, history is his story. God is the one who writes the pages of history. And no world power exists without God's allowance. And no world power survives longer than God wants it to survive. Mankind gives himself a lot of credit. But the truth of the matter is, God is the one who sets up kingdoms, and God is the one who humbles kingdoms. If you remember back to when we studied the book of Habakkuk, probably about a year ago or so, God told Habakkuk then that Babylon was coming to take over the nation of Judah. And God told Habakkuk, this is what's going to happen. And Habakkuk was very concerned about that and said, did you see how evil they are and how much they don't, they they, they hate you and they don't worship you and they worship their own things. And God told Habakkuk then that one day they would also be judged for their sin. And by the way, by the time you get to Haggai, they have been judged for their sin because if you notice, it's not the Babylonian empire anymore, it's the Persian empire. And you read about that. In the book of Daniel. At the end of the day, all will stand before God. It doesn't matter if you recognize God in this life or not. One day you will stand before God. Furthermore, all will kneel before God. Some people will experience devastation and destruction on this earth for their sin. But others will not. And we'll meet that fate in eternity. God promises his leader, Zerubbabel, and his people that one day he will exalt his people and he will fight for them. And as you read these verses, there's some imagery there that's invoked from their past. And I think that that it's important for us to remember that one of the greatest things that we can ever do in our lives to inform our trust of God in the present and in the future is to remind ourselves what God has done for us in the past. Now, just, we just had lunch today with some, with some folks and we were talking about how God works things in our lives and he weaves his story in our lives. And I made the comment, I said, yeah, but you never see it when God is doing it. You always have to step back and look back on your life, and you see the goodness and mercy of God that, co- that goes on in your life. That's what we have to do, because in the present moment, we're always caught up in everything that's going on, and we can't see it. We have to trust. So how do we inform that trust? We look to the past, to what God has done. That's why I encourage you, when you study the, the Word of God, when you, when you pray before Him, that you find ways to record the ways that God answers prayers and does mighty things in your life. Why? Because there are going to be moments in your life when you don't know where to look and you need to be reminded of what God has done in the past because you say, yeah, that's the God I serve, that's the God I trust. We are fickle people, right? We struggle with that. And God has already done incredible acts in the past. He says here, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. 
These kingdoms are powerful. These kingdoms uh, run the world, but God is greater than them because he truly is in charge. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you meet two very powerful cities who have become a stench to God. The cities were called Sodom and Gomorrah. And when God judged their sin, he judged it completely. They were wiped off the face of the earth. Go to the book of Exodus and read of the mighty nation of Egypt, which at at that time was a major world power. And he brought that nation of Egypt to its knees. You read things like, I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and their riders shall come down. That invokes the images of Pharaoh and his armies as they plowed through the Red Sea in one last-ditch effort to overthrow the people of Israel, and God wiped them off the face of the earth. And here we are reminded to look to God alone for strength. How many of you enjoy at least a little bit of maybe military history? You like to read about that kind of stuff. I knew it would be all the guys in here, right? You know, Oh, yeah. You, know? you turn on the History Channel when they're not showing stuff about aliens, and you know, they're showing something about some battle and all that. And you're like, oh, that's really great. And can we all agree, I mean, over the years, mankind has invented all sorts of things for warfare, right? Tanks and planes and these sort of, they found ways to, but before that, they harnessed the horses and the, the chariots and all of these sorts of things. Mankind has invented so many weapons of war. We have leveraged the strength of many a beast in our quest for power. But remember what the scriptures say, Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our Or Psalm 33, 16 and 17, no king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety, neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. What is God reminding of his people here of in in the passage before us and in passages like this? He's reminding us, don't trust in the strength of horses for your success. By extension, Don't trust in the strength of man-made contraptions for your victory. Don't trust in the plans of human leaders for your deliverance. We are to trust only in the Lord. He is the one who gives the victory. And sure, right, God God gave instructions to his people. God, we we have to do something, right? We we have to stand up for what is right. But but our our hope isn't in, yep, I'm following that human leader because he's the one. We're following the Lord because he's in control. He's the one that we depend on. He's the one we trust in. He's the one who gives the horses the strength. How can we trust anyone else? As Job said in Job 39, 19, have you given the horse strength? God speaks to Job here. Have you clothed his neck with thunder? The answer, of course, is no, Job, you haven't done that. I do that. I'm the one in control. Pharaoh and his armies trusted in their might. Pharaoh defied the God of Israel. And in the end, he and his riders came down. And one day, all who oppose God will fall. 
God will wage war on those who oppose him, and he will win. God even says here, the horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. And in thinking about how God uses this imagery of the past, right, to invoke these pictures and to inform our strength, I read that and I was reminded, do you remember the story of Gideon as he went against the Midianite army with 300 men, right? They had their torches and their, and their jars. What did the Midianites do to one another in the confusion? Right, they began to kill each other, right? They began to turn on each other. They, began to, they don't know what's going on. God's might is unparalleled. God's strength is unmatched, and one day he will bring it to bear. So God calls in this passage for his leader and his people to trust him. Because he is mighty, he must be the object of our trust. And what Haggai is doing here, what God is doing through Haggai, is by pointing the people to God's mighty work and God's power, that he is pointing the people to God. Because you can't look at the mighty power without looking at who's behind it. One day in the future, God will win the war to end all wars. That's what they called the world war, right? The war to end all wars. How'd that go for us, right? We're still warring, aren't we? One day there will be a war to end all wars because God will be the winner. He will rule and reign. He will subject all earthly kingdoms to his mighty power. And with this promise of God's might, now God turns from saying, I'm going to deliver the nation one day and give you glory to, number two, God's glorious exaltation of himself and his servant. In verse 23, God tells Zerubbabel that that he has a purpose for him. God says, in that day, okay, in in the day that this happens, in the day that this victory takes place, this exaltation, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shelatiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So God now, now very specifically deals with the governor of Jerusalem, Zerubbabel. That on the day of the prophesied victory from the previous verse, the Lord will also fulfill certain things regarding his servant, Zerubbabel. And even in God's calling Zerubbabel his servant, we see his goodness and plans. This phrase here where where he says, Zerubbabel, my servant. That phrase, that term, my servant, was, was most often used of King David. And thus, it has very Davidic overthrow or overtones in it. What God is doing here is establishing Zerubbabel's place as the Davidic heir to the nation. Zerubbabel was the son of Shelatiel, and he is a direct descendant of King David. And so what God is saying here is, Zerubbabel, you are now the one who is being chosen as the representative through whom the Davidic covenant will pass. God made a promise to David that one day the Messiah would sit on the throne of David. That one day he would come through David's line. And God is saying, Zerubbabel, you're that one. You're the one through whom it will come. God emphasizes here his selection of Zerubbabel. He says, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my, my servant. And at the end, he says, I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. 
God chose Zerubbabel for this promise. And just like in Zerubbabel's life, God's grace is evident in all the lives of those he chooses to use. If God uses you in the life of another person for the glory of his kingdom, it's a work of his grace. It's a work of his, of his glory in our lives. It's not about us, it's about him. And not only is the rebel chosen as the Lord's servant, but notice what God refers to him as. He says, I will make you like a signet ring. Now the signet ring was something that was extremely important in this culture, especially in royal settings, because what that signet was, it was a mark of ownership and authority. And you see it most often in these, these, the, the, the royalty because if something was marked with the signet of the king, he says, I put my authority behind this decree or behind this command. And God is saying here that, that you belong to me and you will have the authority. I have given it to you and, and my authority will come through you. And it's significant here because of what God has said about another king, his name was Jehoiachin, or he's also, I'll show you a passage here in just a minute, he's also known by the name Coniah. And this man is Zerubbabel's grandfather, okay? So think about what God has just said to Zerubbabel, that I will make you my signet ring. Now look what God had just said two generations before to Zerubbabel's grandfather in Jeremiah 22, 24, and 25. As I live, says the Lord, though Kaniah the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off, and I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those who face your, who, whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So what is God doing here in these verses? Well, he is pronouncing a curse on Jehoiachin for his disobedience. He had led the nation of Judah astray. And God said, I'm going to pluck you off my hand. I'm going to take that signet ring. I'm going to throw it away. And now what is God doing just two generations later in Zerubbabel? He's reversing this curse. He's promising to use Zerubbabel to great ends. That, God, that, that he has been chosen by the mighty Lord of hosts. And once again, we see that the captain of heaven's armies backs up this promise. And what a great promise it is indeed. What an encouragement to the heart of Zerubbabel. You think people didn't know Zerubbabel's heritage? They did. You think they didn't know that Zerubbabel belonged to the line of David? They did. And now, looking around at this ruined city of Jerusalem, here is a man in the governorship of Judah, a man of undeniable royalty, yet here he is, the governor of a struggling city trying to rebuild. That doesn't feel like royalty, does it? God says, I have chosen you and I'm going to use you in my perfect plan. The settings of our lives do not necessarily determine the impact we can have for the Lord and the awesomeness of God's plans for our lives. 
you and I are very guilty of this, right? Well, if only this were true about my life. If only I could do this. If only I had this. If only I could do. If only, if only, if only. The settings of our life do not matter. God is all that matters. and He wants us to serve him with everything we have, wherever we are, with whatever we have. We need only to be willing and ready to obey and follow him so he can use us to accomplish his will. And so then we consider now how these things come to pass, or one day they will. We see the fulfillment of these things as we talk about what has happened after the book of Haggai. Because as is almost always the case, the things that Haggai prophesies here do not all take place or find full fulfillment and final fulfillment in his time. Truly, Haggai and many like him are represented in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, where it says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Here's Haggai and others like him looking ahead some 400 plus years into the future and beyond that into what we'll see here even into the the end of time. They didn't see the fulfillment of those things. Some of them, some temporary fulfillments may have come come true, but, but there are others who didn't and there are others that still have yet to be fulfilled. But they didn't let that deter them. They continued to serve the Lord in faith even if they didn't see the fulfillment of the promise. But God has promised to do great things through Zerubbabel. But guess how many days Zerubbabel sat on the throne of David? If you said zero, you're right. But he would, however, be an ancestor to the greatest of God's fulfilled Covenants. If you were to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3, you would read the genealogies of Jesus Christ and guess whose name you would find in those genealogies. Yeah, it's hard to say, but it's Zerubbabel, okay? If you said that, if you thought that, you're right. You'll find it there. Zerubbabel became one of the far off grandfathers of the Messiah. He is, as God said, the signet. He is the restoration of the Davidic line and the link between the exile and the returning people. Think about this. As the people return from captivity in in Babylon, the promise of the Messiah had yet to be fulfilled. The people received the promise. Abraham received the promise, right? That one day through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Go back even further than that to Genesis chapter 3, where God promised he would send one who would bruise the head of the serpent. And God freed them from slavery in Egypt, and there was no Messiah. And God gave them the land of Israel, and there was no Messiah. And, and, and Saul and David and Solomon came and went, and God made promises to David, and there was no Messiah yet. And the kingdoms split, and they went through horrible years of straying from God, and there was no Messiah. And then finally, in 586, there was the final taking away of the people into exile as Babylon took the nation of Judah. And guess what? There was no Messiah. So now, the people return to Jerusalem, 
And now you have all this stuff in the past, and there's still been no Messiah, but God made promises, and he made promises to David. It's a very crucial time. There has to be a link, right, from, from there to someday the Messiah is going to come. And guess who's rebel is? He's the link. He's the one. He's the link from the past to the future. Only God could do this, and he did it in a wonderful way. He chose Zerubbabel as the first connection in that link. And of course, this will then one day lead us to the ultimate fulfillment of these things. Perhaps you've noticed or thought about this as we read these verses tonight. Israel has yet to experience the incredible victories God has promised here. Have you thought about that? Be sure, they finally gained independence as a nation. But what do you always read about Israel? They are fraught with wars and rumors of wars day after day after day. One day, though, God says, that's going to change. One day, Jesus will return leading his armies. One day, he will stand as undisputed sovereign of his kingdom. And so until that day, what do we do? We trust We serve, and we share the gospel. That's what God has called us to do. And we understand that a glorious future awaits those who trust our glorious God. God's great and precious promises are backed up by his awesome and glorious nature. This is Haggai. This short little book is packed with so much truth and so much challenge for our hearts today. Haggai's message to the Israelite still rings true in the hearts and lives of God's servants. And the first thing that you and I have to remember is God's work comes first. Now, you and I in 2023 in Beaverton, Michigan are not called to rebuild a temple, okay? We're not going to say, okay, we're having church work day next week. We're going to clear the land for the temple, right? That's not what God has called us to do. But what are we called to do? We're called to prioritize whatever God's calling and work is in our hearts and lives. And we have to understand there is no such thing as a good excuse when it comes to neglecting our service to God. We are called to serve him first and foremost wherever we are with our lives. And when we do this, we will see God's blessing of his work in our lives. If you will step out in faith and obedience to God, you will see the blessing of God in your life. Now, that doesn't always come with tangible benefits, right? This is not, well, you serve the Lord and bless God, he's going to drop a million dollars on your front porch. I just believe it, right? But there are far greater blessings than money and possessions, relationships, anything we may think of tangible benefits. God blesses us with the the strength for the accomplishment of his work. He blesses us with a right relationship with him. You and I can spend all the time we want investing ourselves Investing in ourselves and hoping for a good outcome. 
But the only way to enjoy the blessings of God is to walk in obedience with him, partnering with others around us in his great work. Haggai also emphasizes this to us, that when we think the outlook is bleak and we're discouraged, we should look up to him. Because God is in control. God has a plan. And God's glory is all that matters. You see that as, as, the, as the book continues. God, God convicts the people. They respond. And then they're discouraged. Right? They, well, what are we going to do? It's not what it used to be. God says, when the outlook is bleak, look up. Look to me. I'm the one in control. I'm the one who gets the glory. And if he is in the work, it will succeed. Because he lays out the measure of what success even looks like in the first place. At the end of it all, if God is glorified above all else, the mission has been successful. That's the measure of success. Did we obey God and glorify him? So let us trust our God in all things. Let us serve our God with all things. And let us see his mighty work fulfilled as we put his work first in our lives. Father, thank you for the book of Haggai. Thank you for these short and simple and direct messages from you to us today recorded for us to read. We thank you for the work that you have promised to do, for the battles you have promised to win, for the glory you have promised to gain for yourself, and thank you for allowing us to be a part of these things if we have a relationship with you. Help us to prioritize the work of God in our hearts and lives, to pursue it, to give ourselves unto it, that we may see you lifted up in our lives. We ask that you would help our church to engage in the work of God, not just say, well, I hope other people do it, but help us to make a personal commitment to serving you in this body, in this place. That we would serve you individually, that we may join together corporately to do so. Lord, as we look ahead to the days you have promised to bring victory, may you fill us with hope and wonder and amazement at the work you will do and the victories you will win. We ask as we leave from this place and go about our business this week that you would help us to live ever-present in the mindset that we want to live our lives to the glory of God. In your name we pray. Amen.